an athlete's life is very short. If you become a human being in society, you can serve humanity for a long time. Welcome to the 8020 Endurance Podcast. I am your co-host, Hannah Hunstead, and that was Sarah Gearhart quoting renowned coach Patrick saying, In today's episode, we chat with Sarah about her book, We Share the Sun, where she recounts her time in Kenya and her experiences with Coach Sang. Stay tuned for an inspiring conversation on running, coaching, and the power of community. Sarah Gearhart, welcome to 8020 Endurance, the podcast that's 80% Ugali and 20% what the heck is Ugali? Sarah... (laughs) Sarah, what the heck is Ugali and how is it relevant to the conversation we're about to have? Oh my gosh. Okay. So Ugali is this thick kind of tasteless porridge made out of maize, corn, cornmeal, um, that a lot of elite runners in Kenya um, use to fuel their training is the best way I can put it. Yeah, I've definitely had my fair share, and I can say that it is very substantive, and it just kind of sits in your stomach, and it's very (laughs) carb-heavy. Well, speaking of Kenya, you've recently published a book about your time in Kenya. How long were you there? Can Can you give us a little background on your book and how long you were there? Yeah, so I've actually spent a collective eight and a half months in Kenya, spread out through three separate trips. So my first trip was actually in April 2021 um, for approximately seven weeks where I was researching and writing the book proposal. And then I went back for six months um, later that year. It was in, I think, October. Um, And I was there for approximately six months for additional research. Um, So... My book, We Share the Sun, is about the life and journey of the prominent Kenyan running coach, Patrick Sang, who, um, if you know running at all, you know he has mentored Elliot Kipchoge throughout his entire career. And there is, there's definitely a, a, an interesting backstory as to how this came to be, if you want to hear it. So <laughs> what happened was, this was April 2020. A literary agent reached out to me, a literary agent in New York reached out to me about a, a feature that I wrote for Runner's World about Cordy Ainsley and their Western States 100, which I had written like the year prior. And he was curious if I wanted to turn that into a book. And at the time, that wasn't quite where I wanted to direct my energy because obviously when you commit to writing a book, you should really be excited about it. And trail running is yes. not exactly like my number one like passion, but I am interested in uh, endurance running, distance running, which, you know, I've been a runner for 22 years and I've completed 14 marathons. So it's definitely a big part of my life. And for the past several years, I had become increasingly curious about um, running in East Africa, particularly um, in Kenya. And I had interviewed a handful of elite athletes um, over the years, including uh, Mary Keitani, Wilson Kipsang, um, Emmanuel Mutai, who I profiled in 2017 um, when he was the number one entrant in the field at the Boston Marathon. And so I was, for a long time, I, believe it or not, I had never been to Kenya, but it was always kind of my goal to go there for a story. 
And so I was going back and forth with this literary agent. I said, that's not what I want to do, but I have this other idea of maybe profiling runners in East Africa, elite runners in East Africa. And initially he didn't really think that was enough to make a book. And so I kind of had to pivot a little bit and I thought, all right, well, who is behind developing some of these elite runners? And as I navigated the research, I thought about Patrick Sang, who I didn't really know that much about him. I'd never met him in person. I'd never interviewed him. And so I just started to do research and the few details that I could find about him made me increasingly curious. You know, the fact that he was a student athlete at the University of Texas in the mid 80s, which I thought was really interesting because how did that even happen? Like, how was he recruited? Um, he excelled in track and field and he had participated in two Olympics, not just participated. He earned a silver, a silver medal in Barcelona and it was instrumental in helping Kenya sweep the podium in the steeplechase for the first time in history. So knowing just a few facts, I thought, okay, I really want to have a conversation with him. Um, ultimately, that's what ended up happening. But there's like more to that story. I don't want to <laughs> keep keep, keep uh, explaining. But um, yeah, so that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. That was how it kind of started. Well, I, I, I will actually give you the opportunity to, to continue that story because one <laughs> of the one of the questions I had um, was I was curious, you know, as a writer myself, um, as someone who traveled to Kenya to research a book, but I did not do this during a pandemic. What were some of the challenges that you faced in in just the kind of logistics of, um, you know, it's one thing to have an idea to write a book about Patrick Sang, but what if he says, you know, not interested? Yeah, that's a that's a shut door for you. So, um, right. so yeah, carry on. Yeah, definitely. So what happened was we have a mutual contact and I reached out to this person and I had a really long conversation. I said, this is what I want to do. And this contact, he's he's known Coach Sang for, I want to say, almost two decades. And he was very frank. He said, I can't say that he'll be open to this. I know he's a pretty private person, but I'll at least talk to him for you. And so they had a conversation. And then after that, Coach Sang was at least open to having me present the idea to him. And just to preface, I ended up putting together a 50 page proposal. So it was, it was very, the outline was very detailed. I knew my direction. I knew the order of every chapter, the content of every chapter pretty far in advance. And so I presented that to him and he really had to think about it. I mean, it's certainly not something that he decided overnight. In fact, we went back and forth for, I want to say about five months. And I was at a point where I almost walked away from the idea because I just thought that it wasn't going to happen. But intuitively, I just knew that there was something there and that's what really kept me going. Um, and then when he finally said yes, um, that well, one, I was really relieved. And of course I was excited, <laughs> but then I had to navigate the whole like process of getting to Kenya and figuring out like, where was I going to stay? How long was I going to be there, et cetera, et cetera. It was difficult. I mean, I'm not gonna lie, it was really difficult. At the time when I had organized with approval, when I had organized my trip to Kenya, it was in April 2021 is when I went. Domestic flights in Kenya had been halted. And so I actually had to, I flew into Nairobi and then I drove um, like seven hours or so to the Rift Valley because that was the only way to really get there. And so I ended up being based in Eton 
the entire time. And then when I had permission to go to the camp, I would drive 45 minutes from Eton to Captagat. So it was a process. I mean, as you know, like getting in and out of Kenya to the Rift Valley, it takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of time. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and what a time to be traveling. What were some of the main culture shocks coming from New York City where you're home based? I mean, I've never been to Kenya. I have been to New York City. (laughs) I've lived there. And so I know what kind of place that is. And just from what I know about Kenya, it almost seems like it's the exact opposite. So just in life in general, but also in the running space, what were the main differences there? Oh my God, everything was different. Everything was opposite. I really appreciated being exposed to the culture and being exposed to a different environment. Um, for one, it, I was in you know rural Kenya. I was in the countryside. So like the people that I was around was basically elite runners, either from Kenya or at, at the time, there were actually some elite Europeans who were preparing for the Olympics out there and small scale farmers. That was pretty much you know, that was pretty much who I was around. And it was quiet for one. So I could actually hear my thoughts, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. So I really loved being in that environment, because it allowed me to kind of focus in a way that being here in New York, it it doesn't really allow me because I can hear everything even now. Normally, there's like, a siren going off, you can hear people talking, construction, etc. Or you're being like pinged in every direction and running off to a meeting, etc. And I just savored the opportunity to kind of sit still. I think I really needed that. And as a writer, I think you just you kind of have to have that environment in order to to write. And um, so I would say just the the noise, the the lack of noise. I really love that. I savored it so much and I miss it all the time. So that, and also just, you know, I was at high altitude and I definitely felt that every day in my lungs. It didn't get any easier. It did not get any easier. I was hoping that it would. The paths that I was running on, they were very rocky. So I actually found running to be quite difficult. And I ended up having to switch to asphalt because I I ended up having a really bad fall. Um, And it totally busted my leg for like three weeks and it was swollen and I couldn't really run. So then I switched to running on asphalt. But I think running is extremely difficult there because you can't avoid running uphill. It's like the hills have hills. Maybe you can speak to that because you've been there. It's, it did not get any easier. And then you see these like little kids who are just running barefoot or like running in sandals, kind of tr- trying to like chase you or keeping up with you. And <laughs> who are like who are you? Yeah, it was like that. And um, I would say also just the diet. I mean, I'm pretty clean about my diet, but I really appreciated being around people who ate really purely. Um, so that was a, a really clean diet. So that was um, nice to see not so much processed food. Um, gosh, I mean, everything was different. The fact that people look you in the eye and they ask you how you are. I know that's like a really small detail, but not everywhere I go, people are like that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like, especially in New York, people kind of tend to avoid eye contact. So it was really nice to be around people who like, kind of see you, <laughs> see that you exist. Um, yeah, the fresh air, etc. Yeah, th- there was a lot that was different. It was the complete opposite of everything that I experienced in New York. And in terms of the seriousness of running too, I noticed that mm-hmm. immediately. I was pretty much the only recreational runner. And I'm someone who, like, I run about 50 miles a week 
on average. And I'm not currently training for anything, but I just like to do that. And, you know, there, that is incredibly low key. And I don't know many <laughs> places you go to where you're running 50 miles a week. And, you know, like that's like decent, that's decent mileage. But there it's like, all right, do you have another workout today or is that it? It's kind of <laughs> like that. Yeah, that's what I felt like. Um, yeah. So I really liked being in such a different environment, though, because I just I learned a lot and I certainly gave me a different um, appreciation and perspective about the sport as, you know, it's treated like a career instead of a lifestyle there mm-hmm. or, or a hobby, rather. Mm-hmm. One thing that uh, struck me right away when I started reading your book um, was that you write about Patrick Sang from a place of ad- admiration and you're kind of like unapologetic about that, very, very upfront. And you know, there, there are journalists out there who really shy away from that. You know, they, they might actually admire someone they're writing about, but they don't they try not to show it. Whereas, you know, in my own writing, I really enjoy writing about people I admire. It just, it's, it's, it's more enjoyable. That's largely how I choose my subjects. So you know, it's one thing for Coach Sang to be an incredible coach and worthy of a book. It's another thing for him to be an admirable person. Can you talk about, you know, what it is about him uh, that, that you find admirable? You know, I had been around people who didn't know that I was writing a book about him. And whenever he would come up in conversation, it was nothing but respect and positive, like positive commentary about him. And I think when people talk about someone in that way, you know that they're a good person. Um, I really admire the way that he goes about coaching his athletes. You know, this is something that I talk about in the book is he's not just training someone to be a fast runner. He wants to mold them into being a human being who can positively contribute to society. And I can't say that every coach is that way. And it was interesting to watch him on the field interacting with his athletes and just how calm he was and you know certainly I've been around enough coaches who who aren't that way kind of the opposite maybe aggressive maybe they're yelling or cursing at their athletes and it was just interesting to see the contrast of here is someone who gets the most out of his athletes and he does it in a way that's really respectful but on top of that he goes outside of the sport and he wants his athletes to be people who really give back and look after their community and try to contribute to the world in a way that's going to affect change. And I think that's something to really respect because at the end of the day, he doesn't have to do that. But the fact that he tries to do that, I think it says a lot about his character and how can you not respect that? Do you think that's the reason that he's such a good coach? Like if more coaches were like that, well, the world would be a better place. So I guess that's not even a question. But like, is that his secret sauce that you found? If there was like one big thing, you know, to take away of what makes him such a good coach and what others can learn from, what other coaches can learn from him, is that the number one thing or or would you say something else? I don't know if I would say the number one thing. I mean, when you look at, well, when you understand or see the way that he interacts with his athletes and the way that he, you know, 
contributes to the sport. Okay, so for instance, and this is this quote's in my book. He said, "I want my athletes to be human beings and not athletes." An athlete's life is very short. If you become a human being in society, you can serve humanity for a long time. So, you know, I think it's really important, and that that is very true. I think that's really important if you look at, you know, the window of opportunity you have to succeed in the sport, you know, like that is, it is pretty narrow. It is short. So beyond the sport, who are you going to be? How do you want to interact with the world? How do you want to interact with people? How do you want to give back? I think that's all really important to consider. So mm-hmm. with that in mind, he he has become a mentor and a life coach to a lot of his athletes. And again, like I said before, how many people are treating the sport in that way or treating their athletes in that way. Mm-hmm. There's um, there's a wonderful little vignette in the book um, that really speaks to the depth of Patrick Sang's character. Um, and I'm thinking about the, the incident where he was accidentally overpaid. Yes. Um, and could you, could you t- share that story? Yes. Yeah, so this was, I think it was the, um, 1988 Olympics in Seoul, there was something, so he was sponsored by Adidas, and he had told me a story about if you achieve a certain place in the Olympics, then you were entitled to a bonus by the brand. And so he made it into the final, and he went to the Olympic Village and he collected his bonus, but he was overpaid by a significant amount. And he took it back to his hotel, and he was counting the money, and he couldn't believe it. He counted it again, and he was surprised, and he kind of sat with it and contemplated, what do I do? And he had shared it with a few people that he was close with, and they said, keep the money like you were given it. <laughs> um, but ultimately, he couldn't live with himself knowing that it wasn't the right thing to do and so he went back and he asked for the boss and he returned what wasn't his and he kept his portion which I think is a really interesting story because again that just illustrates his character like how many people do you think would have kept an envelope full of cash versus actually giving it back you know like it just it just says a lot about his character yeah, and just to uh, follow up quickly on that, the amounts were three thousand and fifteen thousand. So he was he was owed three. <laughs> he, he was paid fifteen. I have to think as an athlete, and this gets back to the question H- Hannah asked about whether I guess his his morality <laughs> is actually performance enhancing. If it's like actually part of what makes him a good coach, and I have to think just like if he were my coach and I knew him as this kind of person, like. I would run through a wall for this guy. Like I, w- I would think it would, I would invest more of myself into the process and I actually would be a better athlete because of, because of his character. Did you see that dynamic play out in, in his relationships with the, the athletes he coached? So I can share a story that Laban and Jonathan career had told me that if you spend time around coach saying you just like pick up his ways of being, and so, for instance, this was at the Amsterdam Marathon when I when I spoke with both athletes, and they were telling me that, well, in Captagat, the athletes at Global Sports Camp, they actually tend to train with athletes outside of camp. They all kind of like run together. And there are some who will show up and you 
don't know what he is going through, but you can tell that he's suffering. And I said, how do you know that? And they said, you can see in their eyes. This is someone in need. I actually put this in the book as well. And so they feel it is their obligation to assist that athlete any way that they can, whether that be to give him or her training apparel, shoes, help support their their rent or give them money for food. And they had told me specifically it was Coach Sang who taught them how to give back in that way. And I don't think I put this in the story as well, but there was an instance during the pandemic when one of the athletes told me that Coach Sang said, tell me who, who needs what and we can figure out a way to support that athlete. So I think I think that's a really beautiful example of you know, the community being looked after. And I can't say that I see that enough, at least the the people that I'm around, I can't say that people are that mindful. It's really lovely. I'm curious to to know what your thoughts are on how these athletes then have, like what's their competitive edge? Because it just seems like such a lovely place, really humble athletes, really humble coach, quiet, calm. So when it comes to the the point in races and in their careers where they need to dig down, like what is, what is it that motivates them to, to find that edge? You know, the one thing that really stood out to me was just how mentally tough everyone is. And I can't speak to all the athletes, but the ones that I spoke with, I know that there isn't like a, like a dedicated meditation practice, I find that the environment is just naturally, it allows them to be really tuned in with themselves. And I think that's really important. That's like naturally like meditation, if that makes any sense. But one thing that I found really interesting, and I spoke with brother Colin O'Connell about this, and this quote is also in the book. We were talking about the mental toughness of a lot of Kenya's distance runners over the years. And, you know, Coach Zhang had said that most of the athletes that he coaches, they come from poor environments. I'll read this quote. When you are born in a poor environment, you're likely to go to poor schools. So you are likely to have limited education. When you become an athlete, this background influences how you project yourself outside and within athletics. And this background, he said, is is a common denominator among the majority of Kenya's runners. Brother Colum explained this as well. He said, except for maybe one or two at most, all have come from rural peasant farming backgrounds. And there is no athlete that you can point out that wasn't born in a rural rural area. Patrick as well. He slotted into what was a very fundamental aspect of his life and lifestyle, which means that young kids are very toughened in the soul, toughened in in the character. They know what hardship is about. They know what it means to suffer. They know what it means to break the pain barrier when it comes to a race because they've been through it their whole lives. And, you know, just to add a little bit more to that, Coach says that this kind of background is what has driven him to create a whole rounded person. I, I think that a lot of the runners that I encountered, they're just naturally tough. And it's really interesting to watch. I find it really inspiring and really powerful. There was one training session that I watched, I think this was like December 22, 21, 21. Wycliffe Kinyamao, who is an 800 meter specialist, he went out for a long training run. It was like 40K and he did the whole thing in the equivalent of, I think it would have been like three hours or just shy of three hours. 
and he's an 800 meter runner. And I was just wow. so blown away because I don't know many 800 meter pro- professional runners who can just go out and do that at altitude uphill. I mean, the route that they were doing is called the Boston route. It's incredibly hilly and you're running at what? 8,000 feet or so. And he just did it. And I was like, whoa. And I, I commented to coach saying, I was like, I'm really impressed by that. He's yeah. It's like mental endurance like that goes really far. I think that says a lot. That's just like a small example, but just to like give you some context, I think that's really impressive. One thing that I found interesting from from my perspective as a a coach myself about Coach Sang's story is that, you know, his, the first athlete he coached was Patrick Sang himself. He he was a a self-coached, you know, post, post-collegiate and then eventually, you know, professional runner and I found it just really interesting how he talked about his approach that it was very experimental about listening to the body and like realizing the signs of doing too much or or not doing enough and then later on only did did Patrick Sang actually have a like a formal education in coaching where he he learned the science and and the methodology and I can't help but think that that was to his advantage that he got this opportunity to just explore and and kind of figure out things for himself before he was kind of like indoctrinated in the same way that any coach would be. Do you think that is a a fair speculation? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, of course, I think that we all lie on previous experience to help shape what we're going to do moving forward. That's really the only thing that I can say. Um, I think the fact that he, not that he like set out purposely to coach himself because he didn't want anyone else to coach him. That was just kind of the position that he found himself in. Um, and I know that when he went to the University of Texas, I know that there was like a little bit of like friction or tension with the head coach um, because of what happened with the time trial story, which I put in the book, that the head coach at the time, he couldn't believe that two Kenyan runners were recruited from across the world and they weren't these like, multi-event athletes and so he was put through a time trial in front of the team is what he shared with me and so that made him like less trusting of the system and then he ended up like sort of doing workouts on his own with his other teammate and sort of like keeping a distance from the team because he also was in a new education system and needed to make sure that he could maintain a certain GPA so that he could keep his scholarship and earn his education. So it's just, it's interesting when you consider like how that actually came to be. It actually, him, him being self-coach kind of started when he was an undergraduate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So collectively, like that is a lot of experience when you're like a, a teen, that is a lot of experience to take with you when you actually start to study and become a certified professional coach. Right. Yes. And interesting that all spiraled from you know, one experience that led him to to not fully trust the coach and the team, right? Did he ever, well, this is most likely in the book, so you don't have to give it all away, but did he ever come back around? Like, what was his take on his time in the U.S.? Like, just like I asked you at the beginning of the call, what was your take on Kenya? What was his take on being here? Just that it was a really different environment that taught him how to work really hard. So, in between, so he also, the assistant coach who he was really close with, he actually got him jobs here and there when he was between seasons. So he ended up working at a restaurant as a dishwasher. He also worked for, I think it was like 
Bud Light, Miller Light, like unloading crates of beer, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is like kind of funny. But really, it just taught him, it taught him how to work really hard and that he was really on his own and you have to figure out how to stand on your feet. It was just, it was also just like a, like culturally, of course, it was sh- shockingly different. Um, mm-hmm. I put this, I put this story in the book as well. His first like well, early social outing experience of like being invited to go to dinner. And when someone invites you, they, t- they're responsible for taking care of the bill. Of course, like that wasn't the case when he went out and the bill came and it was supposed to be split and he and his friend didn't really have money. And so like after that experience, he kind of understood like where his place is. And he said, he said he ended up just like wanting to go to the library a lot instead of going out. Yeah. Cause it was just, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it was just, um, not really for him. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, one of my favorite lines in the book, uh, is, is from, from that section where <laughs> I, I'm paraphrasing it. It said something like, uh, Around this period, Sang briefly experimented with having a social life. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> but um, let's get to that because you know one thing you mentioned in the book, and it's just obvious from reading, is that he he is a private person, and so he sort of has. I mean, he's famous, so I mean, he is a public persona. He's he's well known. He worked with people, but in terms of like a writer coming to spend a lot of time with him, you know asking him a lot of questions, getting a lot of his story. Where, where were the, the, where were the lines for him? Is there, what, what, what were the no go zones and, and how do you interpret that? What does that say about, about him as a, as a person? Yeah. So I mentioned pretty early on in the book um, that he is a private person and there are certain things that are sort of off limits. So I don't really talk so much about his family. Um, and, you know, I was mindful of that not to be intrusive in that way because if someone doesn't want to, wants to protect um, their privacy, of course, I'm going to respect that. So I think, well, that, that was mainly it. I didn't really talk so much about his family and I was super close to him because, you know, I knew that that was important to him and he also specified that. Um, So yeah, I just wanted to respect the, the boundary there. But you do end up getting into some of like the, uh, which I found quite hit, the, the broader context of you know, his tribe, his clan, his family, the history. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Because I think it, it sort of does feed into those were some some shaping forces for him. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was actually surprised when he had shared with me what little he knows about his father and that his father likely, well, he, he was born to a mother who was likely a second wife, you know, polygamy, I mentioned this in the book as well, is legal in Kenya. And um, some tribes, it is quite common to have more than one wife. Um, He did share with me that he doesn't know that much about his father, just that um, from what other people have shared with him, he was a good person. He was named after his father's best friend is also what he shared with me. So he actually had a different name, but he ended up changing it to Patrick. He also shared with me that one of the reasons why he moved back to the U.S., even though he was offered a coaching job at the University of Texas, was because his mother was sick and he wanted to be close. He really valued his mother from what I understand 
And I mentioned this in the book as well, that she suffered from diabetes and he wanted to help support her and, and take care of her. And he, along with his mother and his grandmother, they were the most, the two most important female figures in his life that he shared, taught him really how to interact with, with people, how to treat people. This is going off of a, you know, you as an author and, and not you as uh, an endurance sports athlete. But I'm just curious, like, how did your interview skills improve when you were interviewing him of someone you respect so much, but you don't want to pry, but you have to get information? And how did you balance that? And do you feel like you can interview just anyone now at this point? Yeah, I mean, I never call an interview an interview. I like to consider it a conversation. Yeah. It's like you. Like the most important thing that you should be doing is listening. It's not like you sit down with a list of questions and you just like pummel through in the yeah. exact order. It's really like, I want to know more about this comment that you just said. So I really just considered my meetings with him conversations. And we would talk for we would we would talk for extensive periods of time. Like the first time I met him in person, we sat down for like four and a half hours, which was like kind mm. of hard to transcribe that. And I transcribed every interview by hand, which was a lot. But I, it was important to me to re- re-listen to every tape because, you know, you just get these nuances that are, I think are really important, like the tone of someone's voice or, you know, just recalling specific facts that I think you you need to absorb. But um, yeah, and even before we met in person, we would have conversations on the phone for sometimes like 45 minutes. We would talk about things that weren't related to running or running would always be like toward the end of the conversation. Um, We would talk about things like, you know, Trump was in office at the time. So we would talk about politics. (laughs) That would Mm -hmm. always a lot to talk about there. Um, Politics, um, education, just world affairs and I knew pretty early that he was going to be someone who was in, going to be a really great conversationalist because he can pretty much navigate any any topic. And yeah, when someone can navigate any topic, you can have like a true, a truly deep conversation. Um, so yeah, I mean, he's someone who you sit down with him for five minutes and you just want to know more. You just want to know mm-hmm. more. Yeah. We haven't talked much about uh, Elian Kipchoge in, in, the, in this conversation. And of course, um, you know, Kipchoge is widely considered the, the greatest marathoner in history. They've known each other almost their entire lives. They just have this rich history, very close relationship. Can you say a little bit about the nature of that relationship and, and, and tied into that you know, either from your perspective or perhaps if you know from Kipchoge's own perspective, would he would he have achieved the heights of greatness he did if not for Patrick Sang's influence? I can only say like from from what I know, what I what I've observed and what what they both shared about each other, I think they have a really beautiful relationship. And it's so interesting how full circle it has become you know, I, I, I talk about this in the book that Elliot was watching Coach Sang compete at the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, and he knew of him because they came from the same village. So I thought that was really interesting, almost like foreshadowing. And, you know, it was when um, Elliot was a teen that he approached Coach Sang about uh, a training program. And the story is 
coach that I went to his car and was looking for a piece of paper and a pen. He couldn't find it. So then he just got a stick and he wrote a program on his arm and Elliot like sprinted home and recorded it in a notebook. And that was, you know, when he started to keep notebooks. I can't project. I mean, I think, I think the best way to respond to that question is to share a quote that Elliot said to me about coach saying, which is, I've interacted with Patrick as far as life is concerned, as far as the sport is concerned, as far as business is concerned. When I actually put it all into one cup, life-wise, sport and business, and try to shake, to mix them, I cannot get the right word to describe, right word to describe like what he has meant to him. In my mind, I don't think I would be where I am without Patrick. I don't think I would run the way that I am running or perform well without him. He has really helped me. Um, yeah, he said also, to add to that, I don't think I would have broken any record in the marathon. I don't trust that I would have made a transition to the marathon. So that's from him. <laughs> there you have it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> This was going to be my super deep closing question, but I don't want to end just now. And I, I really do want to ask, and I think it kind of has to do with that question that Matt just asked. But the humble culture that, that Kenya has, and especially in the running community, do you, do you think that Coach Sang thinks he's successful? Would he ever say that? Um, and part two, what do you think his definition of success is? A humble person doesn't brag. <laughs> so I don't yeah. think, yeah, to be honest, yeah. Um, I can't answer that question of what I think, what he thinks success is. I think that's something that would have to come from him. I can only speak to the comment or idea that success is not necessarily measured in material possessions or financial gains. I think it's how you feel when you walk in this world. Are you happy? What makes you happy? Are you living in a way that is going to inspire and empower people around you? I think really that is a definition of success. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so just from what you've taken from him, you said you can't answer it for him, but success for him and how he's spoken to you about his athletes is an entire person, not just the records that he's received from those athletes or those athletes have, have broken, you know, it's, it's an entire person in a life that he's dealing with. Right. That's yeah. very true. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. it. Yeah. Well, one thing that, that's in the book that I find incredibly revealing in that regard is the fact that about half of the athletes who train under Patrick Sang's influence are not members of his team. <laughs> They're just, it's sort of like an all comers thing, like come one, come all. Like, you know, if you show up, he'll give you the time of day. You know, you, you won't necessarily be a formal member of the team in the sense that um, Elliot Kipchoge and others are. But that says something about his approach. For him, I guess, it, like, success isn't even really what it's all about. I mean, right? It's just like, if he doesn't turn anyone away. Yeah, yeah. So, so if you show up, as long as you're serious, as long as you're serious. So, like, that really is the requirement. And one thing that I observed that I, I found really interesting and also really beautiful 
to watch was there was a an athlete, actually, I think like two or three athletes who were hearing impaired and they trained with the group. And one of the athletes I was aware of, I know that he was like totally self-supported and he just kept showing up. I think he would train with him. He's trained for, with them for a few years. I wasn't really expecting that. Yeah. But in order to train together, you do have to be quite serious. Yeah. Serious in terms of like your approach and personality during the workouts or serious like you have to keep, be able to keep up. <laughs> oh, both. Both. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So anyone can come but you might yeah. be dropped. <laughs> oh yeah. I think I think most people would be dropped. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like I I have a story about what it was really like for me because people have asked me did you run with them like no I didn't run with them yeah. if you like understand how fast they run no um but when I was in Eton I would run on my own because that was just the nature of my schedule plus like I'm not fast enough um <laughs> to run with anybody in that town <laughs> and there was one occasion it was on a Wednesday um where I saw a group of runners not too far ahead of me but they looked like they were kind of jogging it was sort of like Wednesday was like the easier day more relaxed and so I thought oh like this is my chance and so like I sprinted (laughs) I kind of like snuck into the group I didn't say a word they didn't say a word they kind of looked at me but I was welcome and um we were running and it was actually a lot faster than I than I anticipated and I just remember feeling like I was racing and I just remember like losing feeling in my arms and I was thinking like, what is this? I'm not like a terrible runner. I mean, my marathon is like 326, so I'm not terrible. Um, and I just remember having to drop out after like a mile, mile and a half. Cause I was like, this does not feel good right now. And I don't think I could continue. That was it. But they were so supportive and sweet. They were like, next time, next time. Yeah, and like, thank you for running for with For sure, us. next Wednesday, I'll see you out there. Yeah, no, they did. They invited me. Like, you should come with, you should jo- You should join us next Wednesday. I was like, probably not, but thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's oh, a different, man. it's a, it's a certainly a different level of speed. It's a different level of speed. Yeah. Well, to wrap up, who do you hope reads your book and what, what do you hope that people take from it? ultimately? I hope that this book inspires every runner of any ability around the world. I want to share a story with you that I was actually quite surprised to notice, but when I was in Boston and I did a couple of events for my book launch, there was a guy who came up to me and from the outside, he just seemed like a really enthusiastic, hardcore, dedicated runner. And he purchased a book and I signed it for him. And later I found out that he actually had struggled with, with, with meth and heroin addiction for over a decade. And he had been in and out of jail at least a dozen times. And he attempted suicide on three occasions. And it was when he was in jail, he decided to turn his life around And after he was released, he got into running and he was in Boston to run the Boston Marathon for the very first time. And he shared with me that he got a lot of motivation and inspiration from reading my book. And that to me meant everything. 
So I hope that my book inspires people like him, but also just anyone who is curious about the sport and wants to better their lives. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's really it. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, one of my agenda items coming into this conversation to thank you for, for writing this book because I really view it as a gift to the, the worldwide running community, just a, a, an important book and, and one that, that needs to exist. So yeah, the story you just shared reinforces you know, why I, I and others should be quite grateful for, for the book you've written. And thank you also for coming on our podcast and, and, and speaking with us. No, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate your words and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. And, you know, the book is kind of like my love letter to running. I obviously really love the sport and I obviously love writing. And it was a really lovely opportunity to merge these two passions in a way that I hope um, will influence people and inspire people in a really positive way. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the 8020 Endurance Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Sarah Gearhart and are re-inspired by running and life in general. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback helps us continue to bring you engaging content. And for our closing segment, what is your jam? My jam of the week is Hollow Heart by C. James. It's a cozy song appropriate for the season as we get into these colder months here in the U.S. You can find that jam in the playlist linked in our show notes as well as ways to connect with Sarah and ways to learn more about her book. Thanks for listening this week and we'll chat with you soon. Bye.